You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. L.A. Times opinion columnist Joel Stein goes on the record online. I'm, you know, getting paid nicely to write this column for the L.A. Times, and I'm essentially just writing a blog. And there are all these bloggers out there, some of whom are better writers than me, some of whom are funnier, many of them work harder. And I'm just thinking, how, how do I possibly compete against people who are willing to do this for free? And thank you for joining us for another episode of On the Record Online, the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. We do in-depth, one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, conversations with bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, chairman and founder of iPressroom Corporation. Uh, We help organizations integrate the web into their marketing communications and public relations initiatives. I am also personally and professionally fascinated in how technology is changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media and information. Today we have a one-on-one interview with Joel Stein. He writes an opinion column in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, He had done a blog for some time on the LATimes.com website. He also writes for Time Magazine about the business of entertainment. His uh, column is uh, is quite humorous and uh, and quite satirical, and uh, quite frankly, uh, is one of the most enjoyable things I read in the Los Angeles Times. It has more character and more panache uh, than anything else uh, I, I read regularly in that paper. Um, yeah, I am a Los Angeles native, and uh, I am a New York Times subscriber, and I must say I find myself uh, much more fulfilled by the op-ed pages of the New York Times uh, than I am by the op-ed pages of the L.A. Times. Um, but, of course, I subscribe to the L.A. Times as well because I want the local news. And the California section, which is uh, akin to a metro section, is um, something that uh, if you want to uh, keep up on what's going on in local politics and uh, city news that you you just have to get. And, of course, the calendar section, which is, I guess, could be described as an arts and leisure section, is um, typically uh, quite, quite good. Um, Also, the Los Angeles Times is known for having a strong entertainment business uh, uh, beat which I must say I think is slipping. Uh, But having said all that, uh, those are my personal views on L.A. Times, and you may or may not agree with them. Um, uh, They're certainly not the uh, opinions of our guest today. Uh, He has his own opinions. His name is Joel Stein, as I said, and uh, we are going to play for you the interview with him unedited after this ad uh, about iPressroom. Now, you guys know that uh, iPressroom is the business uh, behind this podcast. Uh, It's what pays the bills and what gives us the time and, 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 uh, and support to be able to produce the show. So we hope you'll listen to the ad, and after that, uh, enjoy the, um, the unedited interview with Joel Stein. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. 
Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Joel Stein, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for having me on your internet thing. Now, I, I saw that you had written that you wrote somewhere that you would appear on any TV show that asks you. You know what? That's become a little less true because I've had a couple calls this week because I've now convinced most of them to pay me. Although it is kind of true because I went on CNN headline news yesterday. What did you talk about? This, this may prove your point. I talked about uh, Koizumi going to Graceland, something I neither knew about nor cared about. I, I don't know anything about this. Oh, yeah, Bush is taking uh, Koizumi today, tomorrow, to uh, Graceland. Koizumi's a huge Elvis fan, and he's stepping down. So uh, this is kind of his going away present. I see. It was this exciting on Headline News, too, by the way. Interesting. So um, what I was hoping to do was, you know, talk to you a little bit about uh, your experience as a journalist. Obviously, you know, you started over at Time Magazine. Well, that's not where I started. I don't think anyone starts there. But, yeah, that's where I uh, that's where. I first got well, Gabriel you started at you started at Martha Stewart, and then you were at Time Out before you went to Time Magazine. You've done your research, but you were looked. you were your first staff writing gig was at Time Magazine, right or no? I was an editor at Time Out in New York, so I was then I was a sports editor, and there's not much of a sports section, so uh, so they let me write mostly. It was what I did there. That was the first place that paid me to write, and and that's that's the difference I think. I mean, you know, career wise, was the difference between getting paid and not getting paid to write. So just a quick detour, is the Oscar Madison stereotype somewhat true about sports writers or no? Wait, oh, the, um, I'm trying to think of all the sports writers I do know, you know, real sports writers. No, you know what? They're not, I think that's old school. I don't know. A lot of the guys I know now are kind of sports nerds, like the Mike Lupica type, my friend Ken Davidoff. They're, you know, sweet, nice sports nerdy guys who, you know, aren't, as rough and tumble and too shorty as probably the old school guys. But these aren't guys that'll be lining up to see Devil Wears Prada. No, no, they would not. No, they, they, <laughs> that's where they draw the line, I think. Right. So now. I think all guys, in fact, will not be lining up to see Devil Wears Prada. I'm going to go see Devil Wears Prada. Are you seriously? I am. By choice? Or how's I'm it going with my wife. Uh, I actually would like to see it. I didn't read the book, but my wife uh, read the book and she liked it. And uh, I'm interested to see it. Wow, and the New York Times review today, I meant to read. I looked at it and stopped reading. Was it good or bad? I read the L.A. Times review, not the New York Times review today. And what did they think? Uh, you know, what they said was they one of the things that uh, Booth Moore called out, because she was uh, on a little sidebar there, was uh, that they skimped on the, um, on the costuming uh, because apparently uh, she had a toe ring on, and, and anyone who knew fashion would never wear a toe ring. Toe ring? Oh, that is horrible, isn't it? That's very, I mean, I'm from Jersey, but it seems very Jersey Shore. Not very Vogue or Harper's Bazaar, wherever it was. Well, so, I, I wouldn't, I would not be the authority there. You know, it seemed to me like uh, it was a pretty good review. And, um, and they seemed to like Meryl Streep. They said they thought she did a good job. And the opening of the review said that uh, if, if Anna Wintour saw it, she'd be proud, that type of thing. Well, that's not, I don't know if that's a positive. So, you went over to Time Magazine, uh, and you were obviously uh, a reporter at that time. You weren't on the opinion side. 
And now you're over at the LA Times and you're an opinion columnist. And, you know, you have given a very fresh flavor to a publication that uh, is thought of by many as quite stodgy in a number of respects, particularly in the opinion page. Well, I was hired by someone who uh, wasn't at all stodgy, uh, Michael Kinsley. Uh, so that, I think I was just part of, you know, I got lucky that he got hired and I knew him a little bit. So that's how I got the job. Well, he sure had an, had an interesting uh, uh, um, stint over there, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he was the one really taking risks. I'm just making penis jokes, but he, yeah, he was doing all kinds of cool things, and apparently I loved it, and I thought it got them a lot of attention, but apparently uh, they didn't feel the same way. Well, now, when he started there, did the Tribune own the Times? They did, yeah. They did, so I see. And how did the Wikitorial experiment uh, weigh in on his, uh, I guess... So funny, that was like such a... I don't understand newspapers, I guess. To me, they're like daily disposable you know, things that if you're lucky, someone happens upon your story. So to me, it was like he did this wikitorial experiment for like maybe a week or two. It wasn't very long, and it didn't work, and he dropped it. And I thought, you know, who would care? And instead, it was, that was all anyone talked about. It was pretty impressive. Um, but yeah, the idea was that you'd have editorials written en masse, like Wikipedia is written. And uh, it turned out a lot of people went on and just made jokes and were obscene, and it wasn't quite working. Because you need a critical mass. Like, you can't create Wikipedia without a ton of people on there. Um, and maybe, you know, if he had let it go longer, maybe he would have reached that critical mass, and it would have gotten good, but, but they pulled it. So at least he was trying something. I just feel like the bosses I've liked the best are the people that try stuff, even if it's stuff that I thought was stupid. Like, I really liked working for Walter Isaacson at time. And every so often, he would do something. The one I mentioned to him all the time is the, uh, he ran a crossword puzzle for, like, a month or two in Time Magazine. And it wasn't even a good one. I just thought, maybe I'm wrong now that this big documentary about crossword puzzles comes out, came out. But I thought it made us look stupid. But, you know, he tried 100 things, and, you know, 70 of them or 50 of them stuck and made the magazine better. Do you think uh, maybe he was just before his time, uh, Michael Kinsey? No, I think he was in the wrong place. I just think he got used to the freedom of Slate. I think the LA Times didn't want to give him quite as much freedom. So, yeah, I don't think he's before his time. I think I think everyone else is kind of just behind the time and kind of holding on. I think that's the problem with old media. I, I fear that a lot of the magazines I love will be dead in 10 years. Not because magazines themselves will be dead, just because, like the networks, I just feel like people hold on and assume that they'll be around. Kind of like, you know... I mean, Life Magazine or Look Magazine. I mean, these were huge things. And I, I don't think the Internet's a, you know, a category killer at all. I think other magazines will still be around. Newspapers will be around. But you, get, you can't, you know, you can't run a newspaper like it's 1950. Have you or, been, or like 1990, yeah. Have you been following uh, this uh, skullduggery surrounding the uh, Chandler family and Tribune? Yeah, the, the Chandler fight, you mean? yeah. Yeah, you know, I have a really tiny understanding of that, and it seems uh, seems like people like the Chandler family at the LA Times, and they don't like the Tribune, but the Chandler family sold them, so I don't know. It's like abused children. I don't see why they're still holding on, or abused lives. Do you think that uh, it's indicative of um, some sort of disagreement between the strategic direction of how the paper adapts itself to the new media age? 
Is that what the, the fight seems more corporate than that, right? It's about like layoffs and it's about, uh, to be honest, I don't really know, but I, I doubt either of those two people have the answer to how to save newspapers. Right. Right. So, um, one of the interesting, interesting things about your column is, uh, the fact that I, I think of the LA times, um, in, in the in the world of daily newspapers as having the strongest entertainment business news beat of all the yeah. dailies. And the neat thing is you kind of dovetail with that in the opinion side because of your experience um, in entertainment and as a, as a television writer. Um, I mean, do you see, do you sort of see some sort of um, uh, common chord that you're striking uh, together with the the entertainment business beat? Yeah, well, that's why Kinsley hired me, because he, um, many, many people have, have canceled my column, uh, and one of the first was Time after 9-11, and then after about a year, I got Entertainment Weekly to run it for all of about six months before they got rid of it. So then when I was looking around for a new place, Michael Kinsley got in this job, and I knew him a tiny bit, and you know, the LA Times, I'd been actually trying to get a job out for a while. So I, sent, I, I emailed him, and he asked me to send him ideas, and a lot of my ideas were the ideas that I had, I was about to do for the uh, Entertainment Weekly right before they fired me. So a lot of my ideas were entertainment ideas, and that's what he said. He said, that's what we're looking for. We want to cover entertainment on the opinions page as well as the rest of the magazine. So, yeah, and it worked well for me, too, because if you're going to write an entertainment column, not that mine always is, and I try, I try to make it not just an entertainment column, but when I write about entertainment, it's great to do it in L.A., I mean, not only reporting-wise, but just readership-wise, like the right people are reading you. Do you think that um, uh, perhaps uh, the opinion side is going to become more important uh, for print outlets that are looking to compete against uh, a world where the breaking news has become commoditized through, like, uh, Yahoo News and Google News? I mean, do you think that the, the analysis and the perspective and the context is what's going to become the most important thing? from print outlets? It's funny, because like, I know this conversation occurred at Time Magazine when all the news channels exploded, like CNN and, and then later Fox and MSNBC. And the idea was, well, you know, we've never been able to kind of... Just giving people news isn't, isn't our job. Our job is analysis. And I think that was really smart of Time. But as far as newspapers, it's hard to say, because what I always think is I'm you know, getting paid nicely to write this column for the LA Times, and I'm essentially just writing a blog. And there are all these bloggers out there, some of whom are better writers than me, some of whom are funnier, many of them work harder. And I'm just thinking, how, how do I possibly compete against people who are willing to do this for free? And I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't, I don't know if more opinion columns is great for newspapers when everyone has a blog. Or do you just go fishing for the best bloggers and hire them as your opinion columns and try and you know, suck the juice out of blogs that way. It's an interesting question. I don't know. Do you uh, see yourself as as writing for a particular audience? I don't, but I've I noticed... <sighs> I seem to be mostly read by 16-year-old girls, but, but that is... I often think that's only because those are the people who email me. Um, but, I, but I think those are just the people who get excited about things in email is my hope that not all my readers are actually 16. Those are just people who are excited enough about things to email people. But I fear that I might be writing at a 16-year-old level. 
Tell us uh, a little bit about your column for those listeners who may not be familiar uh, with it's it's sort of a satirical uh, column. It's got sort of this tongue in cheek. Uh, it's very humorous. It's probably yeah, the only only funny column in the L.A. Times. I mean, if I had to find one word to describe it. I think it would be awesome. It's uh, it, it's many things. But it's mostly just totally awesome. Is there a theme? I mean, how do you decide what to write about? How, how, how do you decide what is right for your column and what is not? Um, you know, I've been writing a column basically since high school, certainly since my sophomore year of college. It's pretty much the same. Um, you know, when you're writing every week, you don't have too much of a luxury to think about what's right or what's wrong. It's just if you are able to find something you're interested in that you have an opinion and you're lucky enough to, to have that, uh, you go with it. I guess within that realm or within that framework, my main thought is to not comment, to not say something everyone else has said. Um, I, if I have an, have an opinion about Graceland and George Bush, or, the, or even like if I have an opinion about something that everyone's talking about now, like the Supreme Court case on Gitmo, I'm going to stay away from that just because everyone has been talking about it and everyone said everything. If I had some like really weird take on it that I thought no one had, I'd go with it. But otherwise, I'm tempted to stay really far away from that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Warriors and the Wusses, uh, which ran on January 24th, and uh, which you talked about with Hugh uh, Hewitt. Um, would first... Huge, huh? I had no, I'd never heard of him before that, but he's he's an enormous presence. Is that right? Uh, yeah, he's a talk radio guy, and he's a he's an author, and he certainly seems to have a you know, fairly, fairly large audience. Would you like, would you say? Our, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. You go ahead. No, I'm more. I'm just briefly curious about Hugh Hewitt. He's on a par, like as far as his audience size with whom? You know, I, I honestly don't know. Um, like, I was talking to uh, Jennifer, who was helping me uh, prepare for this interview. And uh, she said Hugh Hewitt is a right-wing guy. I said, I don't know who he is. And she pulled some research on him here. And I don't have the size of his audience in front of me, but uh, he is a talk show host, and he's on uh, radio, and he's also an author, and he's also got the blog, and he, and he also podcasts. Wow. That's a lot of things he does. I guess so. I mean, you figure if he's doing radio, he could be repurposing the radio show as a podcast. So that's probably uh, uh, there's a little economies of scale there, and if he's an author, you know, uh, he's probably uh, repurposing that material as a, on a blog. I gotta repurpose stuff more. That seems to be the key. Well, all this, the way I see it, all this stuff is is just new ways of getting information out there. And right. if you want to make your information available to people, however they want it, then why wouldn't you want to take advantage of these other channels? I gotta start podcasting. I think. Yeah, I think you'd be a good podcast. I need. I need like one of those. Is there a Mac? Is there an iPodcast that I can just download and start podcasting? Uh, you know what you could do? You could download. Yeah, there's a couple of. I'm not a Mac guy, okay. but uh, I have friends who are Mac guys, and they could probably you know help you and get you started. It's real easy. Yeah, you know what? I just. I also just realized I'm not gonna do anything unless it pays me. Well, but that's the thing, right? You'd have the first first stop for you would be to shop for a sponsor. Wow, this is so. I have to, you know, what the deal is now you can't just be like a writer. You have to be a businessman. I just want to work for other people. Well, then you you don't want a podcast unless you can convince uh, um, 
Michael Barrett down at the L.A. Times to, you know, get you going on a podcast. Oh, they're cheap. And, and then all I, you have to do is call into, like, a conference call number and do your podcast, and then someone else will package it up and distribute it for you. Man. I, man, it's a lot of work, all this stuff. It really is. You know, the yeah. other thing is, uh, you know, somebody like me could call you up someday and say, hey, uh, you know, uh, Petco wants to do a podcast. Why don't you host it and we'll pay you? That, see, that's, I'm waiting for that call. That's yeah. great. I'd like to make that call. All right. Are you married? I am, yeah. Okay. That shouldn't shouldn't affect the Petco deal. No, it wouldn't affect the Petco deal, but there's a a cruise lines. We're we're getting ready to do some work for them. We're going to have to send somebody on the cruise. Oh, man. That'd be tough because it'd take you away from the kids, you know? I don't have any kids. Oh, just a wife. Just a wife. She's harmless. That might work out then. Yeah. Note to self. Call Joel about the uh, uh, cruise line podcast. My friend uh, Andy Barowitz has gone on a, a cruise, like a really nice cruise to the Greek islands, and all he has to do is like speak once or twice. Yeah, that, that's a lot of people do that. They go speak on these cruises. Yeah, that's a good business. You don't strike me as the cruise type. I've only been on one. Well, I've been on two cruises. Once when I was like twelve years old with my grandmother down in Florida, I played Ms. Pac-Man and and drank sea breezes, even though I was like fourteen, and gambled on the ship. But I loved being off of the American shore. And then the other time was uh, Playboy sent me on a cruise. They staked me in the in one of those poker world poker tour tournaments. So I could win like seven million dollars. Oh, that so must have on. been fun. It was super fun. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think we went down to Mexico, but we never got off the ship because they were all, you know, gambleholics. So we just gambled and played poker the whole time. And were there beautiful women everywhere? Uh, no, it was a poker cruise. It was a bunch of oh, because the Playboy thing. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, whenever I tell people that story, no, it was just Playboy magazine staked me and sent me. So there was no Playboy connection. Once you know, I wasn't talking to my editor. No, it didn't didn't help me that way at all. However, with the few women who were on board, I was very embarrassed to tell them I'd never written for Playboy before. I was kind of ashamed. You tell them you're writing for Playboy, they instantly think a you're slimy, and b they want to hang around you. <laughs> Like, they just think you're, they're fast. It's awful. I've never been a bad boy in my life, and that was the closest I've ever come. It was, it was kind of horrifying and awesome at the same time. Well, I went on one cruise in my life. I had a client who couldn't afford to pay their bill, and they said, well, we can't afford to pay your bill, but we have a deal with Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines, and we'll give you a cruise wherever they sail. That's hilarious. So I looked at all the places that they sail, and I said, well, I, I certainly don't want to be a, on a boat uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, you know, cruising Europe. I would want to be on land in that case. And right. I wouldn't want to be, you know, doing a Bahamas cruise or like, you know, a, um, a drinking cruise on the Mexican Riviera. I thought the one place that would be fun to go on a cruise, because I probably would be, be too difficult for me to move around and stay on, on land there, would be China. So I oh, took that's really smart. Yeah. So I took that, my, my girlfriend at the she was at my girlfriend at the time and we did this cruise uh starting from Beijing and ending in Hong Kong. And I proposed to her on the Great Wall. She's now my wife. And we we were like the only young people on the cruise. It was all these, you know, I don't know if, if anyone listening to this uh podcast understands Yiddish. We were all altacockers on the on the boat. And um, we were sitting at this table with all these really these older people, and uh, the I said this one guy had been married forever, and uh, he seemed like a, he knew what he was doing. So my wife had, or my fiance at the time had walked away, and I said to him, I said, "Well, so tell me, you know, you've been married for fifty years. What's the secret?" And he looked at me and he said, 
two words. Yes, dear. Wow. That's the guy who's stuck on a cruise. Yeah, that's the guy who I met on the cruise. So you, that, know, you, must, you were hundred percent you'd say yes, obviously. I, yeah, I, you know, I, I was pretty scared. Otherwise, you're stuck on a cruise with the woman who rejected you for a week. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I didn't. I wasn't. I'm not that strategic. I didn't think about it. I just thought I'm just going to do it. I figured she'd say yes. It's horrible. Yeah. yeah. God, that would have been awful, wouldn't it? China have? on oh a cruise? God. Wow. <laughs> no one's ever said that before. That's really, that's quite... Uh, you're, you're a cocky bastard. Perceptive. Now, I, I, I knew, I guess I did know that she was going to say yes. Yeah. And, you know, I was broke. I didn't have any money, so it was the, the, the rock was like, you know, a chip. It was like barely visible, the ring. Yeah. What was she thinking? Uh, she was thinking that uh, she loved me, and I, she you know and I loved her, and she figured I'd replace it with a bigger... Uh, with a with a with a carrot when I could afford it. I mean, how long ago is uh was this? Uh, gosh. Yeah. How long have you been married? A long time. Come on, you don't know. You really don't know. A long time. No, I don't. And my wife will never let me forget. She's not That's... one of those types. Of, she'll she'll remind me every year. The problem is it changes every year, so I can never remember. The amount of years you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's tough. You know your age? Uh, I do. I do know my age. I'm forty years old. You gotta memorize the anniversary thing. Yeah, yeah, I gotta get that down. So listen, we, we this is good. I, I, I'm glad we got a chance to have. You know, this is probably more interesting than most of the conversations we have on this podcast. But usually, we talk just a little bit about you know the formalities of news and everything. So I, I want to change the subject. Back to your question. Sorry, yeah, get I, us back I, to that. So, so let me ask you: Do you ever work with PR people? Are you contacted by PR people who would like you to write Every about day. their client? Every day. Who did I talk to today? I talked to someone from TSC, uh, the telecom company, this morning. Yeah, I don't go a day without talking to a publicist. And what what they pitch you on different stories every day? Yeah, or I'm calling them about a story, sure. And uh, typically, uh, you know, what percentage of the incoming pitches you receive would you say are on target? You know, I get fewer calls now that I'm not. I'm working from home instead of an office. Um, so certainly the people who call me now are people I know, for the most part. I'd say, you know, more than half of the people I've worked with before. So they're usually more on target. Um, I'd say, you know, I always took all publicist pitches because I figured it was worth my just percentage-wise. Even if only 5% of them were decent, I was happy with that number. I'd say in the old days when people cold-called me, in my office, I was more readily available. Um, I'd say, you know, 90% of them weren't good and 10%. I'm not weren't good, weren't right for me, and 10% were. How many of, of those pitches would you say were just, I mean, even if you were the right journalist for that beat, they were just uh, not focused? Or, I mean, how many, how many just bad pitches, just outright bad? Um, like per week or percentage-wise? Percentage-wise. Um, I'd say in the old days, half were bad in that I felt like the publicist was required either by their boss or the company to call me, even though there was no way my publication could ever do that story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like if you're Time Magazine and someone's calling you about, um, a specific new local restaurant. It wouldn't be that dumb, but something like that. There's just, 
you know, there's almost no way that that could work. How does the editorial process behind uh, the the opinion page and the and the news side differ? The, the, uh, you mean me getting edited? Yes. Um, it's awesome. Uh, first of all, newspapers put out a lot of words per day, so they are the editing is much lighter than a, a news magazine where you have full week or, or monthly where you have you know a whole month to decide whether it's a semicolon or two sentences. So it's a lot faster at newspaper. But secondly, um, they don't really touch your stuff much. You know, sometimes they make suggestions or make it better, but they they are moving very quickly, and it's your space. So they don't ask me what it's going to be about. They don't. You know, I just hand it to them, and then they do some editing and make it fit. Compared to a news magazine, where you know, there's it's usually assigned to you, and it could be killed during the process, and it's definitely talked about throughout and goes through four different editors so a time magazine it takes a lot longer to get a story out how closely do you work with the other people on the opinion page oh never met that we had one dinner where we all got together i really liked oh the people in la at least which was only half of them that's the only time i've ever met them so how would you make sure that what you're writing doesn't overlap with what they're doing a really good question. I, you just have to kind of read the uh, the paper and keep up. Um, yeah, the only time let's see, I got an email today from my editor, which was very rare, telling me that I'd have more space on Tuesday than normal, which never happened before. And I happened to fill him in on what I was writing about. I was going to write about July, something about July fourth, and he's like, "Ah, actually, everything else on the page that day is about July fourth. So if you want to go ahead, but we'd rather have something else. Uh, so I'm going to do something else." Uh, but usually that conversation doesn't occur, so you just have to hope that you're not doing the same thing as everyone else on the page. I don't know how they they juggle it. It seems really hard. Maybe they hold pieces if they're the same. I don't know. So let's talk a little bit about this um, this this column that uh, that everyone was talking about on the blogosphere, warriors and wusses, particularly amongst uh, you know conservative bloggers. It was. Um, seen as, uh, I don't know, we can't really call you a, a communist sympathizer because that's over. Um, so right. what would we call you? You can't really call me a, a Muslim sympathizer because I'm a Jew. Um, I don't know, it, America did not like that column, is what I found out very quickly. Um, uh, I, I wrote that I didn't support the troops. And what I quickly found out is America does support the troops. Uh, and they don't like people who don't. So that was the lesson learned. And... Um, did you, I mean, when you submitted this, were you thinking about what the impact might be? And, and uh, I mean, were you looking to, to cause a fight? Or, I mean, what, what was your objective with this column? Just to put out your point of view or, or what? God, it was, a, it was a Sunday night. Column is due on Monday. I think I was, I was thinking about writing about, um, oh, that those, those pills people take to fight off colds that were created by a school teacher. I was very angry about that. It wasn't an emergency. It was the other one. The one has to do with airplanes or whatever. And, um, and then I found that other people, someone had just written about it in like, the New York Times, so I, I had to scrap that. And then it'd be some, something I've been thinking about for like a year was those yellow magnets on the back of cars, how much I hated them and how stupid I thought they were. And, um, and Hillary Clinton and other people that, go on, that went on TV, I think she was included, they said that they, they 
didn't like the war but supported the troops. That always bothered me too. That seemed like kind of covering your ass. So I've been wanting to write about it for a while, and I did. I don't. I didn't think it would people would get that upset. I thought it was something people had said before. Uh, and I also, yeah, there were a couple paragraphs I was a little worried about. And I, I, I asterisked them and sent them to my editor, and he didn't seem too worried about them. So I, I don't think we realized that people would get that upset, which is stupid in retrospect. And how did you know that they were upset? Oh, wow. Well, that thing came out the next morning. Uh, it was crazy. My phones just started ringing. There were some death threats right away on my phone. And then there was, I think I got, in those three days, like 1,200 emails. And then everyone, like Nightline wanted to give me the whole show. And certainly everyone on Fox called me, Fox News and Fox and all the conservative radio. Yeah, just the media coverage was sick. AP called me right away. So I, I kind of knew within hours of waking up that it was pretty big. And did you uh, did you grant a number of interviews at, at that time? You know, I, uh, I didn't. I did like three radio interviews. Someone really right, someone really left, and Tony Snell. I don't know if he's, like, you can't call him in the middle, but he was, you know, I guess a little closer to the middle than the other two guys I talked to. Uh, and then I decided not to, certainly not to do any TV. It just seemed like I had a choice between making this my entire career uh, and and kind of just calling it one of my columns. And I decided to do the latter. And I'm glad about that, I think, because I don't love going on TV, and I'm certainly not a debater. And I think I would have, uh, I think I did my point more justice by not trying to explain it more. And um, do would you say that uh, your column is pretty uh, faithful to sort of left-wing uh, liberal politics? No, not at all. That was the weird thing. It was like I was called the most left man in America for a week or two, or maybe more. And then if you look at my columns, uh, I, A, they're not political, but the ones that kind of are kind of libertarian, you know, you know against the Senate hearings about gasoline or... Uh, I'm trying to think of other things that I've written that are vaguely political, but they're usually, I think, something things the right would agree with more than disagree with. But, uh, you know, after that, it didn't much matter. Now I'm, I'm the most left man in America, which is pretty funny to my friends. Has this had a lasting impact, do you think, on your image, your popular image? Yeah, I mean, it's weird, because <laughs> what I actually do for the most part is, you know, write bloggy kind of columns about myself. But among a certain age group, all I'm known for is that column. And then among a, a younger demographic, all I'm known for is going on LLB 80s. Neither of which really reflect most of what I spend my time doing. But, uh, but yeah, you can't control that. So this podcast is being heard by uh, a number of people that are in public relations. Uh, what words of advice would you have for them uh, if they wanted to, to get your ear or if they wanted to, to send something your way that would be of interest to you? Um, you know, what, what, what words of, uh, of advice can you give them if they want to contact you? How should they do it? What do you want to know about? What don't you want to know about? And do you want to get called? Do you want to get an email? How do well, you want to like contact us? better than calls, uh, I think, for most information. Uh, yeah, you know, it, I always think about the publicist when I'm talking, when they pitch me. Obviously, the best situation is someone who's actually read your stuff and knows what kind of stuff that you do. 
those are the most successful pitches, but that's asking an awful lot about a publicist that's calling two to 300 people. Um, you know, I, most, I'd say most stories that I do through publicists are through publicists I've worked with before and have a relationship with. Uh, you know, it just takes a while, I think, for the two of you to understand kind of what each, uh, what, what they're willing to do and what you want to do. Um, but as far as cold calling, it's so hard. I mean, you just, you know, obviously get to the point quickly. That's the most important thing. Because sometimes you get emails or even phone calls, and you don't know what they're pitching for a long time. And that's confusing. And sometimes you give up before they really get to it. Would you disqualify a pitch simply because you know that the person is pitching a lot of people? No, but I mean, my publication will sometimes. I mean, like, I'm doing a, a story about somebody in a month for Time Magazine. And, our, you know, the first question before we decided how much space to, or to do it or give it or, how much, or to do it or not was who else are you pitching to? And they, they kind of said we won't really pitch to any other magazine. Uh, so I think that increased time's interest. But to me, personally, I don't care. So exclusivity is obviously a huge issue. It's a huge issue, certainly for Time Magazine, less so for, I would assume, newspapers and TV. Although not, that's not true at all, actually. Um, uh, yeah, it's a big deal to editors. I could care less. I don't care if the story runs in a thousand places. I'm still interested. In, if I think it's interesting, I still want to talk about it. And how often do you write for Time Magazine? Um, I'm guessing every three weeks now or so. And what, what type of things do you typically do for them? It's a lot of entertainment reporting. Um, I also write the back page essay every so often. Um, I don't know. We just got a new editor uh, last week at time. So uh, he's a friend of mine, so maybe I'll do some other stuff. I'm not sure yet. Well, is there anything else you would like to, uh, to share with uh, our listeners who are, as I told you, you know, business people in marketing and, and public relations and also – in many cases, uh, at the uh, at the executive level. Uh, no, they they can they send me money directly through this podcast. You know, unfortunately, uh, they can't. Is there a button they can press or something? It, we the technology is not quite that robust yet. Well, until that's fixed, I guess there's nothing else. Well, listen. Thanks a lot for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. No, thank you. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.